You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning. Glad to see you guys here. For those of you online, good to see you from the campsite. Guessing? Wonder? Glad to see you. This past week, um, I came across an article, and the title of the article kind of piqued my interest a little bit, and here it is. Americans' View of Government. And I'm usually kind of sensitive to clickbait. Like, I'm usually like, oh, you're not going to get me. This one got me. And as you might guess, the article summarized American attitudes toward the current state of government. Here are a few of the findings. Of those surveyed, 65% said that political candidates run for office to serve their personal interests. Only 20% said that they trust Washington to do the right thing most of the time. 8% described the government as being responsive to the needs of ordinary Americans. Just over half, 56%, said they are fearful about our country. And only about 20% are proud of the way things are going. Now, I am not a political commentator. I'm not a political pastor. I think most of you guys know that. Uh, nor do I really know how to accurately interpret political data, but here's how those stats hit me. They just kind of made me sad. And um, I imagine they, uh, they may make you feel the same way. And from where I do sit as a pastor, though, that portrait kind of resonates with what I've heard and felt from a lot in the last couple of months. So I think it's worth asking the question... As Christ followers, what is our role to play in the political landscape? Are we just like the world, taking stands and taking sides? Or does the Christian hope offer anything different? That's the real question. Does the Christian hope offer anything different? Well, this is our fifth week in our summer teaching series, taking First Peter just verse by verse. And it's a good time to mention that if you miss any of these weeks, if you're on vacation or if you are at a campsite somewhere, you can watch. Uh, later, you can hop on to ncchapel.com sermons, and you can catch up from any of the previous weeks. So if I had to subtitle First Peter, though, it would be this, Christianity blown wide open. Peter takes on all these like super tough topics that are really hard to talk about, but are deeply necessary for forming Christian maturity. And today is no exception. So this morning, in a time of dishonor, disrespect, and even violence, Peter, as he writes, is part of the unchanging, ever-relevant Word of God, is going to unfold a helpful perspective of what the Christian posture ought to be toward politics. Not just to that, but really to any authority over our lives. This is probably going to stretch us a little bit. It has me. It's probably going to cause you to think, but I can't wait. So, let's get to it. First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. 
It's always interesting, by the way, while you're turning there, flipping there, or scrolling there, like sometimes the texts just like line up with what's going on in the world, and I'm like, oh, sweet. We're talking about this July 4th weekend. Great. So here we go. First Peter chapter 2. Take a look in verse 13. Here's what he says. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as those or as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good for this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people live you, live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover up for evil but living as servants of God honor everyone love the brotherhood fear God honor the emperor Okay, so this whole section starts off with this giant imperative verb, this command verb, where he says, be subject. Be subject. And this command is made even more unbelievable when you consider the immediate historical context of Peter's audience. So let's get to it. First Peter was written probably somewhere between 64 to 68 AD. Here's a quick glimpse into their cultural rearview mirror. The current sitting emperor, here's a picture of him, Current sitting emperor at the time is Nero, who at the time of 1 Peter had been reigning for about a decade. This was the guy who burned Christians as torches in his garden. Before him was Claudius, there we go, ruled from 41 to 54 AD. One of the professional historians of first century Rome took the risky step of describing Claudius as, quote, Bloodthirsty, cruel, overly fond of executions, easily manipulated, and maybe ironically, paranoid. So not high marks for the campaign trail. Before Claudius was Caligula, only four years as an emperor, but he made his mark. Caligula was described by his own biographers as, get this, this is just a train, here he goes, Insane, self-absorbed, short-tempered, killed on a whim, slept with other men's wives, bragged about it, killed for mere amusement, deliberately wasted money, caused starvation, and wanted a statue of himself for worship in the temple in Jerusalem. Sweet guy. Before Caligula is Tiberius, who reigned from 14 to 37 AD, who was described by a Roman historian Tacitus as infamous for his cruelty and veiled in his debaucheries. So just another solid dude. Before him, Caesar in power at the time of Jesus' birth is the one that you might remember from Christmas time, Caesar Augustus, 31 BC to 14 AD. Another modest leader, Augustus, is the first Caesar to declare himself son of God. Interesting. So picture those Roman white marble busts on some Corinthian shelf somewhere. And here's Peter saying, be subject to them. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, and their lackeys, those little guys that follow him around. Now first, just to ease any tension that you might be feeling, here's what be subject does not mean. This does not mean you have to worship them. This does not mean you agree with them. This does not mean participate in whatever they call you to do. This does not mean support whatever practices and policies they choose to roll out. Here's what be subject does mean. 
the subject is a characteristic and deliberate posture taken out of worship to God with wisdom, and it's done willfully. I chose those last three words really, really carefully because I think they come right from this text. We subject ourselves out of worship to God with wisdom and willfully. So let's unpack that, and you'll see where these come from right from the text. First, we subject ourselves out of worship, not to those guys, but to God. Verse 14, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he says, Emperor, governors, as sent by him. That means that every civil authority, whether they acknowledge God or not, is folded into God's sovereign plan for his world. No leader escapes God's sovereignty. Now, I don't know about you, but I draw a lot of comfort from that. It makes God's sovereignty look a lot bigger than I thought it did. But no leader from a public library assistant to the president of the free world (laughs) is outside of God's sovereignty. They are sent by him. This isn't Peter saying that God approves of the methods of every authority, nor does Peter argue that Christians should participate in the agendas of every authority. But those authorities are nonetheless sent now, biblical scholars will debate on what that means, and maybe you've got your own idea. Here's what I think he's imagining or what he's hearkening back to here. I think Peter is recalling how in the Old Testament, because remember Peter's Jewish, that both the Babylonians and the Assyrians, both wicked, wicked, wicked kingdoms led by cruel and godless kings are still referred to in the Old Testament jaw-droppingly as the servants of God who execute his wrath. And then, in turn, were both condemned by God for their means and motives for doing so. See how this got so complex so quickly? Sent doesn't mean endorsed, but it does mean they are used by God to accomplish his sovereign purposes, which no one can question. Put plainly, subjecting yourself out of worship means that Christians cannot simply say, well, I'm going to honor God. I don't have to honor authority. We can't say that because at least according to verse 14 and verse 15, where he says this is the will of God, to rebel against authority consistently, deliberately, is against what God wants. And so we subject ourselves out of worship to him. But secondly, we, object our, or we subject ourselves in Wisdom. We don't just do it out of worship to God. We do it wisely. This comes right from verse 15. He says this, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, the way of saying that is by living wisely. What happens? You put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What's he mean? People may never read the Bible, but they will read your life especially when it comes to how we handle authority. This is reaching way back to where we were last week, that it's our goodness that stands as our vindication. Put plainly, Christians should be so loving, so caring, so good inside of our given political structure that those who would speak against you would look foolish for doing so. 
We should be so otherworldly in the way that we subject ourselves to human institutions out of love for them and honor to God that our love tips the scales of public opinion in our favor for God's glory. Before the words of persecution come out of their mouths, our goodness is the cork that stops it. And I've got to wonder, is that me? Like, am I known for being good to the point where I would silence those who would criticize me? Hmm. Third thing, when it comes to subject yourself, we must subject ourselves willingly. And this is the hardest part of the text, and at least just to name this, I think this is the hardest, the most countercultural thing that we could say today. Like, as if anticipating back, me going like, yeah, Peter, like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to subject myself, Peter. Nobody else is doing that. Why should Christians be any different? Peter kind of gives us this space in verse 16, and he goes, okay, okay, okay. Live as people who are free. So let's stop there. What he's saying is like, you don't have to subject yourself to anybody. You're free. That's wonderful. You don't have to do any of this. But then in this very clever grammatical turn of phrase, Peter goes, and use that freedom for honoring God. Oh, Peter, like cranks it a little bit. Don't subject yourself to a human institution because you like them. Don't subject yourself to a human institution because you agree with them. Don't subject yourself to a human institution because they deserve it. Subject yourself to a human institution because God commands it. So yes, you're free. You're free from sin. You're free from punishment. You're free from fear. But you're slaves to Christ, Romans 1. You've been bought, and you're not your own, 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 1 Corinthians 7. Here's Peter's point. Freedom only has value, ultimately, if I use it for gospel gain, not for personal benefit. No one can make you be subject to anybody. And that's exactly why it's so powerful. Then... As if looking for a way to cut through the rhetoric, distill the dialogue, and get to the bottom line, Peter sums up our social obligations with four quick staccato, almost too quick to be good and helpful commands. All four of these are imperative verbs in verse 17, or commands what God expects us to do in relation to civil authorities. So let's take a look at each one, and we're going to talk about what they mean. First, he says, honor everyone. Your translation might say, honor all men. Now, for Peter's readers, this would have been massively countercultural. In a world where those with status and power and influence and clout are naturally assumed to have more dignity, more value, more worth, Peter casts a vision for mutual honor and dignity. The Christian should be the first one to honor anyone and destroy any other system that would urge us to do otherwise. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. The second command is a little bit tighter. This one's tied to the church. He says, love the brotherhood. Peter's the only New Testament writer to use that word brotherhood. But what he has in mind here is this deep, abiding, family-like love that the church ought to provide. As brothers and sisters in Christ, Christians ought to enjoy a deeper love where we even shelter each other from the winds of the world. Third command, fear God. 
That's not new. It's not surprising. But there's something here I want us to see. We are to fear God. We're not to fear anyone else. Did you notice that? One commentator puts it like this. Those who fear God are delivered from fear of other people because they know that God will keep them in safety, which paves the way for the fourth and hardest of these four. Honor the emperor. I'm going to take a little more time with this one in a second. But for now, this is the second time that word emperor has come up. So how should we understand this? The word emperor is elsewhere translated as king. And so the most natural way of understanding this is that this is the person we see as the highest authority in a civil context in a country. So if we're going to apply this to our American context, this would mean a president. If you're reading this in a social context of a monarchy, this would mean a king or a queen. Or, and this is the hardest part, if we're reading this as a dictatorship, in Peter's first, as Peter's first and original readers would have heard this, that shelf full of Roman despots that we lined up earlier. Now, here's the thing. Because I know some of us are going, wait, 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 wait. Sometimes they don't deserve it. Sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes these guys are so bonkers that I've just got to go, nah, nah, I'm not doing it. No, 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 no. We're going to resist. I agree. Interestingly, there's a scene from Peter's own life 30 years earlier in Acts chapter 5 where he seems to go against what he's saying here. Here's the scene Acts chapter 5. You can scroll there if you want to. Peter. And the rest of the disciples are preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, and they're causing a massive disturbance in Jesus' name. The high priest, a civil authority, gets wind of this, and he locks Peter and the disciples up. Middle of the night, angel comes, busts them out of jail. They walk out, they resume preaching, and are promptly rearrested. True story. Here's where we're going to pick this up. Acts 5, verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. Okay, so this is a trial. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. In whose name? Jesus. We told you, don't go talking about this Jesus. You're causing problems for me. Don't make this any harder, Peter, than it has to be. Say whatever you want, just don't you go talking about Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Now, pairing Acts 5 with 1 Peter 2, this kind of seems like double talk, doesn't it? Like, which is it, Peter? If God put them there, 1 Peter 2, why go against them and resist? Acts chapter 5. So let's try and clarify this a bit, because I know this is a question. There is a time when Peter or when Christians should join with Peter in Acts chapter 5 type of decisions and say, we must obey God rather than men. But that should only be done when three criteria are present. And if you're a note taker, you're going to want to get these three. Number one, when man's command directly violates a prior command from God. 
when man's command directly violates a prior clear command of God. In the case of Acts chapter 5, Jesus' command for his followers to preach the gospel. And the high priest says, no. And Peter says, doesn't matter what you say. I'm preaching in Jesus' name. Stone me if you want. That's the first criteria. Criteria number two. When our heart, when our heart is for resolution, not revolution. When I read the accounts of persecution in the New Testament, in other parts of the world where our Christian brothers and sisters endure persecution today, I'm struck that the tone is rarely this like, come at me, bro, pry my Bible from my cold, dead fingers, like sophomoric pregame smack talk kind of thing. The posture seems to be, I want to submit to you, but in conscience, I can't. There's like this sobriety. There's almost a reluctance. It's never this eager like, There's a heart for resolution, not an eagerness for this revolution. Third criteria, and this is probably the hardest, I think. When we are willing to accept the consequences for that resistance. When we are willing to accept the consequences for that resistance. In the first century, Christians who refused to give even a pinch of incense to the emperor in worship knew full well what they were in for. In Acts chapter 5, Peter knew the consequences and he preached anyway. And if this were me, I pray that I would be so bold. The principle seems to be willing to obey God and willing to accept the consequences for doing so. And you know why I'm saying this. I'm saying this because I want North Canton Chapel to be an honoring church. Doesn't have to be an agreeing church. Doesn't have to be a participating church. Doesn't have to be a toe-the-line church. But we should seek to honor those that God has put in authority over us. Now, I know that's not William Wallace. (laughs) I know that's not Maximus. Great movies, terrible theology. Just so you hear me. There are occasions for resistance, but they were always born out of love for Jesus' honor and glory because we are Christians first. Unless you think that willing subjugation, as Peter advises here, lest you think that is the thread that unravels the church, let me ask you to consider, historically, where does the church thrive? Where it's persecuted. Historically, and you don't have to look too far, I don't mean any disrespect, but where does the church shrivel? Where it's comfortable. Speaking of discomfort, here's where Peter goes next. Take a look in verse 18. He says, servants, which is a servant slash slave. This is one kind of idea. He says, servants, be subject to your master's with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. What, Peter? Come on. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, it's a very important phrase, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good, there he is again with this do good thing. Hmm. And suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
Now watch where he goes next. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, that is his father. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. By the way, if you're not catching the Isaiah 53 imagery here, you've got to go back and read Isaiah 53. He's just like plagiarizing the Old Testament brilliantly. Isaiah 53. For you are straying like sheep, but have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In ancient Rome, servants and slaves occupied about a quarter of the population. And so it's safe to assume that if you're reading this in your little house church, that would have been about 25% servant or slave. And to our modern ears, we might wonder, like, why doesn't the New Testament talk more about the evils of slavery, especially given the lessons of our American history? I've wondered that. I'm going like, how do you, how do you reconcile this? Here's what we need to remember, and this is super tough. This is a whole other sermon for a whole other day. The New Testament writers didn't see themselves primarily as social revolutionaries. They saw themselves as people who were changed by Jesus and wanted to encourage others to reconcile their relationship to God through him. They understood that culture must be changed, but the best way to change culture isn't by upending the social structures of that culture, but by changing the people in that culture. And the only way that happens is with Jesus. This is changing the culture from the inside out. Yes, the culture must be changed. The only question is how. You can do both. And we should have our eye to both. The New Testament writers took an inside-out approach, and so we must also have our eyes to that. But here's the thing. By even addressing servants and slaves, Peter does something unexpected and beautiful. In Rome, slaves and servants, servants and slaves, weren't even seen as people. And so they had no moral responsibilities. But in the church, servants and slaves were full and equal persons, image bearers of equal worth, partakers in the gospel, welcome at the table, no exception and no distinction. But here's what blows my mind about what Peter says here, how he says it. Philippians 2, 6. You can write that down in the margin. We've referenced this text a couple other times in the last few weeks. I want to bring it up again. See if you can fill in the blank for me. Though he was in the very form of God, he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a... Servant. So get this. In addressing slaves and servants, Peter makes a direct allusion to the one who made himself a servant. Now, what does all that mean? It's right in the middle of verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. What's the point? Grace teaches something that retaliation can't. And Peter's saying, believe me, I saw it up close. You can almost imagine Peter rewinding the tape from 30 years earlier where he saw the sinless Jesus who never told a lie to anybody in any context, who, when they spit on him, did not spit back, who, when they beat him, did not beat back. 
who let them press the crown on his head, who could have called down angel armies but didn't. This brings to mind what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Take a look at this. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then what I find most striking is how Jesus embodied this himself. He lives in this tension between honoring God and honoring the emperor. It shows up in John chapter 19. You don't have to turn there. Here's the story. Jesus before Pilate. Pilate, who was hardly a man worthy of respect. Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And then in the ultimate, like, mic drop moment, Jesus says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. You see what Jesus did there? He honors Pilate, who is this cowardly politician, on his face, not worthy of respect at all, and honors God in the same movement, the ultimate authority, even over unjust leaders. It doesn't matter if you're a servant in first century Rome, if you're an employee with a jerk of a boss, or if you're just somebody under somebody else's thumb. Grace is a very tough but very transformative ethic. So how do you do it? How do you do the countercultural thing and keep your head about you, especially on Fourth of July weekend? How do you build the right frame around the picture? So for the next five minutes or so, it's probably going to be longer than that. <laughs> I want to give you four ways you can keep your faith intact in a divided world. Four ways to keep your faith intact in a divided world. Number one. Pray for your authorities. Pray for authorities. This one's just biblical. Here's a scripture you can write down. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Here's what it says. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Don't miss the purpose clause at the end. That we may live a dignified life. We follow Christ. That's why we pray. Not to change minds, not to regain influence, not to take back the culture, but to faithfully follow Jesus. That's what changes culture. And even beyond Paul's exhortation to Timothy, praying for others, especially those who annoy you, it's just great relationship practice. I've had this over and over again in my life when like, I'm like, I'm over here and this person is over here and like, I can't reconcile this. I'm like, God, will you just be here? Will you fix this thing? Will you mediate? Would you do what I cannot do? Well, how should we pray? Let me give you a couple ones really quick. And these come right from God's word. Pray that you can be honest about your emotions. Politics, is, it's, it's charged stuff, guys. We know that. Romans 8 says this, is we don't know how to pray as we ought. And I take that to mean that so often my emotional life chokes out my prayer life. <laughs> Romans 8, 26, just like, God, help me pray better. Another way you can pray 
You can ask God to bring goodness even if the land doesn't recognize him. Jeremiah 29.7 says, Seek the good of the city. Seek the good of the city. Another way you can pray for your leaders is to pray that they would submit to God's purposes for them. That's an okay thing to pray. King Uzziah in the Old Testament, it says in 2 Chronicles, that as long as he sought the Lord, he prospered. Another way you can pray, and this probably I think is where I find my heart drifting a lot, is pray that leaders will surround themselves with good and godly counsel. Proverbs 11.14 says, for lack of counselors, plans fail. So that's one way you can keep your faith intact in a divided world, is just pray. Start there. Another one, second way, is you can watch your mouth and your thumbs. First, watch what you say. (laughs) This past winter, we did a series on uh, Proverbs where we talked about the power of our words. And one of the questions that we asked, I don't know if you remember, is, does what I say to people, around people, and about people line up for God's heart for people? Jesus himself spoke about Caesar, but even in making a distinction between God and Caesar, he didn't show disdain for Caesar. And if we want to be a follower of Jesus, we should take God's word and do likewise. Watch what you say, but also watch how you say it. And <laughs> get really specific here. We need to watch our jokes. I think we need to watch our jokes. Political humor is easy. It's why everybody does it, and it's why it's sometimes funny. But here's the thing. Political humor may be funny, but it is rarely helpful. Why? Because political humor usually, usually, maximizes a public figure's shortcomings and minimizes their dignity. It maximizes their shortcomings and it minimizes their dignity. And if I'm reading the Gospels straight through, Jesus does the exact opposite. I see him maximizing other people's dignity and covering their shortcomings with grace. And as Christ followers, I think we should do the same thing. Watch what you say, watch how you say it, watch who you say it to. (laughs) Proverbs 24 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him yourself. And if that doesn't summarize Facebook comment threads, I don't know what does. (laughs) But I get the tension, because when the conversation goes down the path to dishonor, it's almost like irresistible. Like we feel the impulse to mirror back those feelings to keep the conversation going. But God wants something better for you, so he cautions you. He says, stay above that. Don't get sucked into it. And then another one under this one. Watch what you say, how you say it, who you say it to, and watch when you say it. I think this is probably the most important. James 1.19 says that Christians should be quick to listen, slow to speak. Another way to put that is we should be eager to learn, slow to respond. Eager to ask questions, slow to post opinions. And in our gotta form an opinion, gotta post it, gotta get it out there world, deliberate patience. It's probably one of the most countercultural ways you can honor others. When everybody else is jumping in, it's good to listen for a while. Why does God want that for us? Because God wants to protect us from our own ignorance. <laughs> Tell me if anybody else has been caught in this. Usually, maybe this is just me, usually the first things I say are the dumbest things I say. <laughs> usually. So that's number two. If you want to keep your faith intact in a divided world, watch your mouth. Number three. Remember the real battle. 
Remember, remember the real battle. This is how you can honor others in authority over you. Two texts I think that are important here. First, I'm just going to read them really quick. Ephesians 6.12, this should come up. It says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then another text that I think will help us in this, 2 Corinthians 5.16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Here's what I take those two texts to mean. The world sees political divisions like this, like left and right, like these guys versus these guys, good versus bad guys. Christians, though, if we're thoughtful, see the world like this, good versus evil, light versus dark, life versus death, and, 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 and people are the ones caught in the crossfire. People, human institutions, and those who elected them in our context, pray for them, vote for them, all those human institutions are the prizes for which light and dark are battling. And so when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.16, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh, what he means is that Christians see people differently. How would the world look different if instead of fighting with others, we fought for others? We show our allegiance to Jesus and our vigilance toward tending to the real battle. The fourth way that you can keep your faith intact in a divided world is to give temporal things temporal weight. Give temporal things temporal weight. There's this really beautiful prayer that I've found myself praying in these recent days because um, I'm concerned about the same things you are. There's this prayer book called The Valley of Vision. It's a very old and very beautiful Puritan prayer book. And here's this prayer. I'll just give it to you. Oh, Lord, teach me the happy art of attending to things temporal with a mind intent to things eternal. So before I move on, I, I wanna, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a moment, but I want to speak to those of you who do wrestle with feelings of anxiety and fear as it relates to civil authorities and governmental structures and the directions things may be going. You may feel small and you may feel powerless. You may be discouraged. You may feel like you are caught up by something that is bigger than you. And so I want to offer you something that um, I think will be good for your soul. And this is from Isaiah chapter 40. And it's one of my favorite places to go when I feel small powerless, overwhelmed, and discouraged. Just listen to this. I just want you to receive this. This is Isaiah chapter 40. He says, Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He brings princes to nothing 
And he makes the rulers of the earth as an emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. He blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. Now what does this have to do with honoring the emperor? Please hang with me just a few more minutes. No human leader will ever be able to solve the deep needs of the human soul. And so no human leader should ever be able to upset the deep needs of the human soul. We honor those in authority over us by placing appropriate expectations on them. Trusting in the Lord, Isaiah 40, means we let them be human and we let God be God. We give temporal things temporal weight. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.